This is Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number R9 with guest Megan Peters. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another edition of the recovery series on the podcast. As always, I am grateful that you are here and I am ecstatic to bring you this week's guest, Megan Peters. Before I do, I have a couple of announcements for you. I have room for one private client currently in my practice. If you are a woman who maybe you've read my book, maybe you love the podcast and you are ready to take your life to the next level, if you want more guidance in your life. I invite you to go to yourkickasslife.com forward slash coaching to read specifically about the work I do with women. I have different packages available, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Let us know what you want to change in your life to see if we are a good fit. I also do jumpstart sessions with new or new-ish coaches, life coaches. If you are ready to kind of get your ass off the ground with your coaching business. That's what I help new coaches do. So yourkickasslife.com forward slash coaching is where you'll go to snag that one-on-one spot with me. And I know you love podcasts because you listen to this one, and I know that you love personal development, and you might remember if you've been a longtime listener, I've had Christine Hassler on here not once, but twice, and her podcast is rad. I don't even know how else to explain it. It's called the Over It and On With It podcast. What she does every week is she takes someone live on the air and coaches them. And I listen to her podcast. I love the topics that she has on there. And she's just really, really good at what she does. She offers practical takeaways and insights on every single episode, and no topic is off limits. She talks about romance, heartbreak, finding your purpose, career transition, loss, body image, self-care, anxiety, insecurity, family struggles. I mean, those are just a few of the subjects. They're diverse, all of the subjects, and so you will always find nuggets in there that apply to your life as well. So first, you can go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and search for Over It and On With It by Christine Hassler. You can follow her on Instagram and tell her that I sent you. And I also want you to grab her free gift. She actually has two things that she wants to give you, and it's super easy to grab them. She has an ebook that is 32 Days to Uplevel Your Mind mind and uplift your heart. And she also has a six-step guide to intuitive decision-making. Say that really fast. But it's super easy to grab those free gifts. Just text the keyword Christine to 444-999. Super easy peasy. Text over Christine to 444-999. You can get those free gifts from her and go over and listen to her podcast. Tell her I sent you. You will not be sorry. And that's all I have for the announcements. Before we jump into this week's episode, let me tell you a little bit about Ms. Megan Peters. 
Megan Peters is a writer, photographer, designer, recovery advocate, and blogger based in Kansas City. She started her blog, Crazy Bananas, in 2004, and it covers just about everything. Her writing about living as a mother in long-term recovery has been featured on Scary Mommy, the Kansas City Moms blog, Substance.com, and Addiction.com. You can read more about her in the show notes at yourkickasslife.com forward slash R9. And without further ado, here is Megan. Hi there, Megan. Thank you so much for being here. No problem. So excited to be here. Yay. You and I have kind of ran in the same circles in the recovery world for quite some time, and I'm so glad to have you here. And I start this episode like I start all of them in asking you to please share with us your story and what was your relationship with alcohol like and when did you know it was time to quit? Right. So the story, the story is always a novel, right? So (laughs) I mean, like I always, you know, through recovery, it's like you go back and you kind of look at all these moments that you thought weren't big deals. And you're like, Oh, that's where this started. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I was always a really empathetic, deep feeling person, a total people pleaser from the time I was a very small child, which I think is happens to a lot of people Mm -hmm. who end up the way I did. You know, my family of origin, I was very lucky that I did not have alcoholism in my immediate family. But you know, prior generations did have that issue. And I just I always equated love with approval. Like I just wanted to be the best at everything to be perfect and to make everyone happy. And then everyone would love me. Yeah. (laughs) And failure just was not an option from a very young age. I mean, I remember being really young. And I wouldn't even try things if I didn't think I was going to be the best. Mm -hmm. Like what's even the point, right? Mm -hmm. And there was some mental illness in my family. So there was some chaos in the home as well. So I was really a person who liked to control everything around myself. And so when I had my first drink, I was 15 and it was kind of like that great release. You know, I'd been a person that lived under so much pressure that I put on myself for so long. And it kind of like, I felt normal for the first time, like just relaxed. And, you know, in high school, I was an honor student. I was an athlete. I had a 4.0, you know, I had this like facade of perfect going on, but it was so much pressure. And I just found that alcohol relieved that it was like, I could take a break from it for a little while. And I always drank to get drunk always from the very beginning. It was never like, Oh, I'm going to relax and have a glass of wine. It was like, how much can I put down in a short period of time to make these feelings, the pressure in the world disappear. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I was, you know, some people would say lucky, some people would say unlucky, but I just never really had any consequences from it. And really was able to kind of keep up this facade, you know, I had the drinking Megan, that -hmm. would go out to, you know, parties and get wasted and whatever. But I still managed to keep the good grades. I kept, you know, the athletics up. And I graduated from high school in three years. Like I just never had the consequences that would make me say, okay, this is a problem. You need to stop. It was more of, okay, this is working. Like this is working for me. Works until it doesn't. Exactly. You know? And so I, you know, I moved on, I went to college and in college I dealt with some depression for the first time. Like I said, my family has a history of mental illness, so I wasn't totally surprised and started somewhat dabbling in other drugs as well. Nothing real big. Like I tried things, but I always liked alcohol the best Mm because I felt like I could control it with everything else. Like I would feel out of control and I didn't like that feeling. I liked the feeling of being able to control how drunk I was or whatever, even if that wasn't actually true. Yeah. (laughs) I felt like it was. 
And the other thing I really realized in college was that I was an introvert, which whenever I say that people are like, you are not an introvert, you know, like my life is about being outgoing, but I really do believe you can be outgoing and also be an introvert Yeah, for sure. And it was exhausting for me to be social all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And in college, I felt like that was my life. I was having to be social all the time. You know, you're living in kind of a group living situation. And so alcohol really helped lubricate that for me. And again, just kind of gave me that feeling of like, okay, I feel normal now. And I started to have some consequences in college, but nothing to the point where it made me want to stop. You know, like I had probably normal college behavior. Exactly. You know, when you're in that environment, I mean, I still definitely, you know, looking back, (laughs) I mean, there was a slight intervention with some of my sorority sisters where they sat me down and were like, we're worried about you. But I just kind of blew it off and said, you know what? Everyone's doing this. You know, I was on full scholarship in college. Mm -hmm. I was doing well. I was kind of like, it's not a big deal, you know, and just blew it off. And then I, of course, as we do, found people that agreed with me that I was fine and started spending more time with those people instead. And, you know, the consequences that I suffered were just not enough. They weren't enough yet, you know. So after college, I went into that post-college 20s life. I was still pretty young because I graduated high school early. I think I was 21 when I graduated college. And, you know, I had all this freedom and I had money. didn't stop, yeah. (laughs) No, I had a job. I wasn't, you know, paying my college fees anymore. Like life was good. Mm -hmm. And I was living with my boyfriend. I dated this guy for, it had been about three years when we found out that we were pregnant. Mm -hmm. And it was a total shock and surprise and not anything that was planned or that we were ready for. And only in the past couple years have I realized what a huge traumatic thing that was in my life. At the time, it was kind of just like, okay, what's next? What's next? You know, just figuring it out. But that for me was kind of the end of my free days. And it was nothing that I had planned. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Like no clue. I was joking with my daughter the other day because she's 11 now. And I'm like, who is the grown up in this house? Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Who put me in charge? So, you know, I went from being, you know, in my 20s, everybody was just, you know, having a party all the time to being a young you know, 22 year old working mother. Yeah. And my husband and I, my boyfriend at the time, we got married and he's my husband now. And we just kind of jumped into this like adult life. That mm-hmm. we Played not... grown up. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. Like I still, I'm like, I can't believe they let us go home with that baby. We were babies ourselves, but it was like, we were old enough to where we were like, okay, this shouldn't be a problem. You know, we're yeah. not we can figure this out. We went to college. Yeah. yeah. We to college. We have jobs. Like it's fine. But I immediately, you know, fell into the thing that so many mothers fall into, although I think for some mothers it happens later, but because I had her so young to that, you know, isolation and being a person who was already an introvert, I'm not a person who's going to go out and find social situations. Like Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable in my aloneness until it crosses that line into isolation, which is what it did. And, you know, we were young, we couldn't afford a babysitter. And so that kind of started the phase of my drinking where it was drinking at home, Mm -hmm. drinking alone, drinking because I deserved it because I worked so hard and I took care of this baby. The baby was asleep anyway. I'm not hurting anyone. And, you know, a lot during that time because I was bored. Yes. 
Yeah. And I was, you know, I was really lucky that at that point, you know, social media wasn't a thing. So I wasn't seeing all the things my friends were out doing, but I heard about it. You know, they'd be like, we lived in this kind of area. I live in Kansas City and we lived in this area of Kansas City that was really close to like not a party district, but a district that had like bars and restaurants, like a really nice area of town. And we lived in this great little neighborhood and our friends would walk every night, you know, down to get dinner and down to whatever. And they, do you want to come? And I'm like, no, I have this baby. Mm-hmm. And my husband actually quit his job to start his own business. So it was just, it was a lot of pressure. I was making all the money for our family. You know, he wasn't making any money at the time. We were investing everything we had into this business that he had started. And I was a mom all of a sudden. And yeah, I just, it was the bottle of wine times, you know, get a bottle of wine on the way home from work. And as I was thinking about, you know, my story, there's this one story I always tell. And I used to tell it like it was so funny, but it's so not funny where there was one day where I was stopping at the liquor store on the way home from work to get a bottle of wine because that's what I did. And I had my baby with me in like the carrier in the car seat. And I took her into the store and the guy at the desk started screaming at me because she wasn't 21. She was a baby. What? She couldn't be in the liquor store because they said she couldn't be in the liquor store. And like, I used to tell that story like, oh my God, isn't that the craziest thing you've ever heard? That's so silly. But I was so ashamed. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt like he was going, you horrible mother. Uh-huh. You brought your baby into this liquor store. A baby and in was, a bar? I know, right? <laughs> What's store? wrong with you? And so, you know, I just... I was so lonely and I didn't have any friends who had kids, you know, I was 23. And so I just, you know, was, yeah, dealing with the boredom and the loneliness and I didn't have any coping mechanisms. You know, when you pick this up and when you do this perfectionist thing for so long, you don't develop normal ways to cope with pressure or pain or sadness. And that was my only thing in my toolbox mm-hmm. was alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, kind of started going down that path and the pressure was in Sane. Like when I go back and look at my journals from that time, like I was just so unhappy, but I had no idea yeah. what to do about it. And I also felt guilty because I had this beautiful baby. And at that time I had started writing on a blog, which is the same blog I still have in 2004 when I was in college. And so I was kind of one of those early bloggers. So everyone, like all of my friends, people I knew read the blog and I felt this pressure to also, you know, put that facade out there. You know, everything's great. I love being a mom. I'm so lucky. And it was just, it was out there for everyone to see. And I cared so much what everyone thought of me. I wanted them to look at me and go, oh my God, she's amazing. Like she is a super mom. Look at her. She's going to work. She's, you know, supporting your family. I needed that. That's how I felt loved. And so if anything went bad with that, I didn't feel valued. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to stop you for a second. What you just said points directly to this one particular tool that I learned when I went, I'm certified in Brene Brown's work in The Daring Way. And this one tool that she teaches that completely like blew my mind, it's called like identities and triggers. And the premise of it is that you pick an area of your life and yours, you know, it's kind of a combination of like friends and like your social circle, I guess. And you write down the ways that you would never, ever want to be seen or perceived by these people. Like if you heard them talking about you, like what is the worst thing they could say or what is the worst thing they could say to you, like how they think of you. And it's interesting to do it in all areas of your life, but it sounds like like you didn't want to be seen as somebody who was struggling. You definitely had in your mind how you wanted to be perceived by these people. And so the point of it is when like when we know all of those things, which most of us don't, most of us don't walk around conscious of this. 
somewhere along the way, we become at risk for being seen that way, or it happens. Like we make a mistake at work or we, you know, like I was telling you a story right before we started recording, like we'd say something stupid on a forum and, you know, mm-hmm. and we make these mistakes and that's when we're at risk for shame. And shame is that thing that we all have that no one talks about. And that's what keeps us drinking. That's what keeps us drunk. And it's such a big part of recovery. So anyway, I went off on a little tangent there, but please continue. Just wanted to throw that out there. Absolutely. And that was a huge, you know, at the time, kind of in between this time before I had my second child, I was kind of Brené Brown was early into her work, but I had heard mm-hmm. of her yeah. and I had done some like online courses cause I was like really unhappy with my job. And so I was doing these online courses to like find out what I should do with my life. And you know, when I go back and look at all those things, drinking is always a part of that, but I didn't realize that that was what was happening, but there was so much shame, you know, so much shame around everything. Yeah. And the problem is, is when your whole life is built around being perfect and you make a mistake that shame is just so crushing and you can't handle it. And I could not handle it. I've heard a lot of women say this about Brene's work is that especially like her more recent work, because I was a fan of hers in the early days too. And then when her research started to move towards shame and she started speaking out about it, I think there was a lot of people out there. I talked to a lot of women who said, I don't really resonate with that because I don't walk around feeling shame. And that's not the point. Like we don't walk (laughs) around conscious of it. And she does explain this a little bit, but that what's happening is that we're constantly running from it. Like if you're engaging in perfectionism, you are letting shame rule you because you are running from shame. If you struggle with control or people pleasing or numbing out, you are again running from shame. And I think that like for me, that was such a huge eye opener in recovery where I was like, oh shit, it is right. running me. Like, cause I didn't feel like I was walking around like being a shameful person. But mm-hmm. like once I kind of understood that concept, everything changed for me. And I was like, oh, okay, that's why. So it gave me the ability to learn different ways of coping. Yeah, that's so great. I love all her recent work. I think it's so wonderful. And she's doing so much good in the world. Yeah. So what ended up happening? I love the post that you wrote for Scary Mommy called The Last Hangover. And this is also, there's links to this on your blog, which we'll link to in the show notes. Because my favorite line is you said, I felt like I was constantly running with no finish line in sight. No matter how hard I worked or how much I loved my family, I felt like I could never get my head above water. I was drowning. So can you say more about that? Because that sounds like you were kind of like at the end of your rope when you were feeling that way. Absolutely. And that really talks to like the last two years probably of my drinking. So I went through kind of a secondary infertility situation with my second child, which again, I felt like was the world punishing me for being horrible. Cause Mm -hmm. like first you get accidentally pregnant and no one's happy for you. And everybody's like, Oh crap, what are you going to do? And then when you want to get pregnant, (laughs) your body won't do it. Mm -hmm. And so I finally did end up getting pregnant with my son. And I, you know, thought, okay, I'm going to be okay because I could stop drinking when I was pregnant. I was able to stop. Mm -hmm. I felt such great relief that I was pregnant and that I couldn't drink anymore. But those next two years, you know, I went back to it so fast after he was born and it just, that progressive thing, it's just a killer, literally. Like it scared me so bad. And so what I was talking about, that drowning thing, I legit felt like I was drowning. I felt like I was working so hard during the day. I would come home, immediately need that relief. And then I couldn't stop. My off button was completely out of whack. And then of course, because of that, I couldn't sleep. I was up during the night. I was exhausted. I had a, you know, a one-year-old and a Mm five-year-old and I was working full-time. And so I spent my days 
you know, guzzling coffee and trying to stay awake. And then I would immediately get home and start drinking and feel that relief. And it was just this freaking squirrely hamster wheel. Like there was absolutely every day. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, that one of the things that I was thinking about, or I have thought about a lot in the past couple of years, especially as I look at myself now, almost four years into recovery is the physical issues that were happening at Mm. that time that at the time didn't seem like issues. And even for the first few years of recovery, I didn't really think like, Oh, I wasn't that bad. Right. I'm not that bad. But I mean, when I look at photos of myself, when I really think about that time, I mean, I was bloated, I'd gained weight. My skin was kind of a weird Mm -hmm. sallow color, you know, even my hair, like in photos, my hair is fried. It just looks dry and brittle and, I had headaches every day. I had stomach issues. I could never sleep. I had, you know, night sweats. And I started thinking around that time, like, okay, this obviously is not healthy. Like I said, I go back in journals and I'll have written, like, I think I drink too much. I think I need to stop drinking for a month. Mm -hmm. I think I need to take a break. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that perfectionism thing was the thing fueling all of it, right? Because I still had to do all this other stuff so that I would look perfect. And I needed fuel to do that. And I had nothing else. That's all I had was alcohol. And, you know, I was trying to find all this fulfillment in things that were outside of myself and that I couldn't control. So the thing is, is even if I was doing everything right, which I wasn't, but even if I had been, it wouldn't have made a difference because I don't have control over my, my boss, my kid's behavior when they're, you know, tired, my husband, whatever. And so, you know, it was like that self fulfilling prophecy I'm a failure. I'm the worst. I might as well drink, you yeah. know, <laughs> and yeah, it's that total. It's the cycle. And I mean, that was just kind of when I started trying to think about, okay, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. That was kind the of the voices point. were getting louder about <laughs> yes. needing something to change. I didn't realize that our stories were so parallel. I think I didn't know the details of your story until just now. And I had a very similar story. My drinking picked up after the birth of my second child. And mine was a little bit different. Like I was very resentful during my pregnancies that I couldn't drink. I was pissed off, especially the second one. The first one was easier. The second one was harder. And then after she was born, same thing. And I nursed, I nursed her and I drank the whole time. And actually I think I got sober. No, I got sober when I was still nursing, but I had still for a long time and a little bit now even like have shame around that. And I think that for me, and and I'm curious if you felt the same way, one of the things that kept me drinking, and I think that some people listening might be able to relate to this that I don't know if I've brought up in episodes before, but as a mother of two small children, I felt like, you know, if I get sober, then I'm going to have to tell somebody. And Mm -hmm. I was so ashamed and embarrassed and guilty and like all of these feelings all at once about being a mother who drinks too much because our culture, I knew did not have much compassion for mothers who were alcoholics. And Mm. I couldn't bear to identify myself as one of those women, you know, one of those women that we see on TV that are just like, just these like menaces to society, you know, and like I had made up all these stories and then I didn't want to be that person. And I knew that for me, I knew that if I kept going, I surely was going to be one of those stories that I read about that, you know, when women lose their children. And I was just curious if if you had that similar feeling of just the shame and stigma of being a mother who drank too much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was a huge thing that kept me sick for a long time because not only was there shame around it, but I could not fathom how I would be able to go to 
PTA happy hour and not drink Mm -hmm. and have to explain why. Like, what am I going to say? Well, obviously I'll just have to drink, you know, like, and I felt so embarrassed because I felt like everybody else was able to do it. They could keep it together, whether that's true or not, but that was my perception of what was happening. And I was so embarrassed. You know, my daughter at the time was five, she was in kindergarten. And I mean, I just, you know, is starting to get into that world where it's not just play groups anymore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's school, mm-hmm. it's events. There's so much. And I didn't want these other women judging me. I was afraid, like, are they going to let their kids come play at my house? That's what I was afraid of. Are they like, going to let me drive carpool? Mm-hmm. Are they going to let, like, are they, are they all going to be talking about me behind my back? What a horrible mother I am. And for me, a person who had built my entire self-worth on being the best mother and the most amazing mother human being in the world, that was just too much. And so, you know, the crazy brain of mine says, well, instead of taking care of this problem, I'll just ignore it and keep drinking so that I don't have to deal with it. (laughs) So how do you think that you got past that? Well, you know, I think it's, for me, it took a long time. Like I very can like go back to the day and remember things that happened and how long it took. And, you know, it was about a year of like going back and forth, stopping for a few days, like not serious, not Mm -hmm. thinking I need to stop forever. And then it was the Christmas of 2012. My son had just turned two and I just felt horrible. I felt physically horrible. And because I'm a blogger, I had followed another blogger and she used to write, it was Stephanie Wilder Taylor Mm -hmm. who had written, you know, her books. She had written these funny books about babies. They were like this humor memoirs about, you know, taking care of babies. And they had come out right when I had my daughter. So I had already been following her for Mm -hmm. years and she came out as an alcoholic. Yeah. And that wasn't when that happened. That had happened years before, but I remembered that. And so I went back and kind of looked at her website again and started, you know, doing the whole Google thing. Like, am I an alcoholic? Click the boxes. Oh, crap, I am. Let's close that browser and just pretend I didn't (laughs) do that. Exactly. And, you know, through all that, through kind of the, the crazy, you know, world of the Internet, I found some podcasts. I found some online recovery groups and just kind of started dabbling. Like I wasn't saying anything. I was just kind of taking it all in Mm -hmm. and was trying to stop. And it took me four months of like being like, I'm not going to drink anymore for me to be able to string together more than four or five days. Like it was not immediate. So were you going to recovery meetings or were you just doing it quietly on your own? I was doing it quietly on my own. No one knew. My Mm -hmm. husband didn't know. I didn't tell anyone because your husband. Nope. Nope. I didn't tell anyone. And a huge part of that was kind of what we were talking about the shame thing, but also the idea that I didn't want to fail. Yeah. I didn't want anyone to know I'd failed because if I tried this and failed and people knew, then I, they would actually know I'm an alcoholic because a real normal person would be able to do this. Right. So there was that. Did your <laughs> husband then, not notice that you weren't drinking? Um, I wasn't stringing it together long enough for him to notice. Okay, I was probably okay. just, and I, at that point, you know, had gotten, I wasn't totally secretive all the time, but I was secretive enough with it that he didn't have any clue how much I was drinking. I was doing it, you know, when he wasn't home from work yet, you know? Yeah. I was hiding the bottles. I was going to the liquor store for my lunch hour at work. It was that whole thing. So he had no clue how bad it was. And I would also argue, you know, so much of my issues, you know, I don't think you have to be a certain level of like bad alcoholic to stop. And I don't think I was quite at the level outwardly to like just anyone where you would go, oh my gosh, you really have a problem because I had been so good at hiding it. 
And because, you know, I wasn't living in a gutter. I didn't have any real consequences that anyone had seen. Uh And so I think I was able to hide it a lot better. But then, so in April of, gosh, 2013 now, it was April 16th. It was my last day. April 15th actually was the last day I drank. And I will never forget it because it was my uncle's funeral. My uncle was a huge influence in my life. He was just a wonderful person, but he was an alcoholic Uh and he died. And, you know, he had four people at his funeral and and it was just the saddest thing ever. And I went with my sister to this funeral and came home and we had a long drive and I got home and I turned on the TV and the Boston bombing had just happened. Uh So that's all over the television. Like just ever, just gore. No one had known what had happened. You know, no one knew if this was like a one-time thing. No one, I mean, it was just horrible. And I was just sitting there drinking. And I just remember I had this crazy voice. I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was God. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That just said like, this isn't helping. Like, this isn't going to bring your uncle back. This isn't going to stop what's happening on TV. You just need to stop. And I dumped out the rest of that bottle and I haven't had a drink since. And a lot of people will be like, oh, well, it was easy for you then if you could just do that. And that's not true at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was very hard. But after that, I really dove. I mean, that day I dove into recovery like it was my job, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted it so bad. And I was so exhausted of fighting. And it's that whole, you know, when they talk about surrender, that for a long time was a huge stumbling block for me because I don't want to be weak. I right. want to be strong. And I didn't realize until that moment that surrendering didn't mean I was weak. Surrendering meant I wasn't going to try to fight to be a normal drinker anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you weren't giving up on yourself or giving up on life or just giving up. You were fighting like it was fighting. Yeah. Did you find that like I found it extremely difficult and not fun to try to be a normal drinker? Oh, my God. No. It's just like what's even it's the worst. That's sometimes <laughs> like people will talk about like, well, what do you do when you want to have just one drink? And I'm like, it is so not worth it. Like that is so exhausting. Like, ugh, so boring. Like I said, I mean, I always drink to get drunk, and one drink isn't going to get me drunk. I mean, no. even if it's really strong. Just, so. I don't understand. Like, to me, that's a drinking problem. And, and like, I think that, like, the true – because some people are like, well, how do I know if I'm an alcoholic? And I think, that, you know, that's the whole conversation about the mental obsession. And I think the way I describe it is – because people ask me, even my husband asked me, like, don't you think you could just, why can't you just have one? And I'm like, I can absolutely have one. I don't want to have one. And if I have right. one, I'm going to be constantly thinking about drinking another one. I'm not going to be listening to you. I'm not going to be paying attention to my children. I'm not going to be thinking about anything except, can I have another drink? When can I have another drink? Should I wait until tomorrow? Should I wait until this person walks away? I hope this person is quiet soon so I can go and refill my drink. And I can't believe I agreed to just have one drink. And it's like this long run on sentence about drinking or the Mm -hmm. feelings about drinking. And it's like, I also say it's kind of like when you have to pee and you kind of think about it for a little bit and then you can't find a bathroom and then a couple hours goes by and you get to the point where all you can think about is trying to find a bathroom. Like you have to pee that yeah. bad. That's what it feels like for me to have one drink. Yeah. How fun There's is just, that? I mean, <laughs> it's not. It's, and I, I was like, I, when like I first got into recovery, I remember trying to think, have I ever just had, I don't think I've ever in my entire life just had one drink. I've at least had, had two. There's only like one in the house and there's like a snowstorm outside or something like where I cannot go out and get more. <laughs> 
It's the See, I would have prepared. I would have gone out and oh, had yeah. like a stockpile. You're not, <laughs> you're not a good no. drinker if you're not prepared. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was the total, I always, I laugh because I mean, again, it's not funny, but it is funny. Once you get into recovery, you can kind of look back at these things with a little bit of humor and lightness. But I remember going through, you know, the checkout line at Trader Joe's and more than once this happened at Trader Joe's where I would have like a case of wine and the people would be like, oh, are you having a party? And I'd be like, yes, yes, that's definitely not all for me. That is for a party that I am throwing because I love throwing parties. What, oh, my show. God. We moved when we moved from San Diego to Utah because they didn't have Trader Joe's at Utah in the U-Haul with all of our furniture. I packed three cases of two buck chuck. Oh, my God. Because, you know, like, oh, my God, because I didn't want to be without it. Like, I didn't want to be moving and have to be like, I got to go to the grocery store for right. chips and mm-hmm. wine. Yeah. That's like the safety that I had to have with my drinking. I have a question for you. So what advice do you have for someone who's struggling to string days together? Like she says she wants to get sober and maybe is sober for like a week or two and then convinces her I mean you know this person you were this person like convinces yeah. herself she can just have one and like kind of keeps finding herself back at day one and then gets frustrated with herself and and what advice do you have for her I mean the biggest thing is just don't give up keep going mm-hmm. don't let one mistake or one drink or whatever stop you because I think that's where I really struggled was that whole okay if I'm gonna mess up who cares about any of it I might as well not even try And the truth is, is that it doesn't stick overnight. It just doesn't. I mean, and that's, you know, when I tell that story about me dumping the wine bottle down and people are like, well, see, it was easy for you if you were able to do that. And I'm like, no, no, it was not. And, you know, it takes a lot of trying and failing. It really does. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anyone. I really don't know if I know anyone who just was like, I'm not going to drink anymore and stopped who maybe they must not be alcoholics, I guess. And then the other thing that I really like that what made it stick that last time was that I reached out to other people. I asked them what they did and I tried everything mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and the thing was like, I didn't need it, everything to work, but I just, I kept an open mind and was like, you know what? I can try anything once and who knows, maybe it will help, you know? And so like we were talking about recovery meetings earlier, I didn't do recovery meetings in the very beginning because I was scared. I was scared I was going to see somebody I knew. I'm not a big person into church or religion. And, you know, they were all in churches and there was God everywhere and and whatever. But that was one of the number one things that people said, go to a meeting. Like, at least then maybe you'll meet somebody that you could meet for coffee when you're feeling weird. It has the same goal that you do. Exactly. And so I went and that ended up being a great part of my recovery toolbox for the first couple of years. I don't go regularly now, but it worked for me at the time. And it was just because someone suggested it to me and I said, all right, I'll try that. Like, I'll try anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try yeah. anything because I'm so desperate for this to work. And I also made a really big point of looking for other people in recovery that had the kind of recovery that I wanted. Mm-hmm. So just like anywhere else in the world, there are going to be people in recovery that do it in a way that's not going to work for you. You know, like mm-hmm. I especially found that in recovery meetings, like there would be especially like guys there that were real hardcore yeah. and old times. Um, yeah. Well, and for me, you know, as a mother with two young kids, a working mom, I could not make a my life. Mm-hmm. I could. And some people think you have to do that to make it work. That's OK. That's not the recovery that I can do. So let me find somebody that has a similar situation or a similar similar life outlook 
who looks happy and serene and sober and ask them what they did and then try it. And I found, you know, like I said, there were things that worked, there were things that didn't work, but from all that, I was able to piece together kind of a method that worked for me so that when that time came, when I was, you know, on my knees and ready to do this for real, I knew kind of what to do. You know, I had Mm -hmm. actions because for me, just like sitting there in like the total terror of like, oh my God, am I going to do this? Wasn't going to work for me. Like I needed actionable things to do to feel like I was, you know, making progress. Does that make sense? Totally. And I I think that's great advice that, you know, that just to try anything. And I think everybody kind of needs to do their own research. And, you know, you said it took you a few months of trying to string days together. And, you know, I've talked to people who get so down on themselves for, for making it a couple weeks and then they drink again. And I think that it's part of their story. And, and I know how frustrating that can feel to hear that, but I do, I think that everybody needs to go through whatever they need to go through to get there. And, and I remember one time I was at a recovery meeting and, and it was like a discussion type. It was a small meeting. And the guy said, who was the boyfriend of my sponsor, he said, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when I walked into these rooms, I was totally desperate and everybody nodded their head except me. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I actually didn't feel that way. And I think like, that's the thing too, is that sometimes in recovery and even like for people listening to this podcast, like you can start to think like, it has to be this way. Like I have to have this type of story or I have to feel Mm -hmm. this way. And I don't think that's the case for everyone. And I think especially for women that have a high bottom, And by high bottom, I mean, it's like you don't have that like super tragic rock bottom story. We heard a couple of those on the podcast. I did not have one. You know, you didn't really have one. Mm -hmm. But I think that I didn't feel really desperate. I was just like, I know where this is headed. Even though I don't have a crystal ball, I'm not a psychic, but I knew in my gut, in my bones, if I kept drinking, it was not going to end well. Like I knew that for sure. I would bet all of Oprah's money that it was going to end badly. It was going to destroy my marriage. It was going to probably destroy, if not, you know, just make it really bad. The relationship I had with my children, it was going to just make me very small, like a very small shell of who I was meant to be on this earth. Like, and that was something that knowledge for me was enough for me to quit because my soul told me, like, you are not destined to have Groundhog's Day. You are not destined to just keep up this habit. I mean, if you want to call it that, of like drinking every night, getting up in the morning, pushing through a workout, drinking coffee, like how you were explaining it. It was mm-hmm. just this, and obsessing every afternoon or all day on drinking. I'm like, it just is not a fun life. It wasn't a fun no. life. And I think you and- have to get to that point. And like we said at the beginning of the podcast, it's a recovery saying of like, it works until it doesn't. I think Mm -hmm. that no matter what you call it, if you call it desperation, if you call it rock bottom, whatever you call it, you have to get to that place where it's not working anymore. Right. It's just not. Right. And like for me also, I mean, one part I didn't say, but you know, I have been so unhappy. Like I'd said, I'd been looking into Brene Brown's work. I'd been doing these courses about like finding my path in life. And I had had changed everything. I had quit my job. I mean, by the time I finally got sober for real, I had quit my job. I was trying to pursue my passions. I was doing everything that had supposedly been making me unhappy in my life. I was addressing except for the drinking 
And I was still, which is kind of everything, (laughs) right? And I was still so desperately unhappy. And that was the one thing. And it's like, okay, it doesn't take a genius. I didn't have a rock bottom where I'm like going to be on the news. Right. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying earlier about like seeing other women and, you know, there was that story. I remember so vividly that story of that woman in New Jersey who drove the wrong way on the turnpike with her kids in the car. Oh God. And I just remember watching that. And so clearly thinking that could be me. That documentary literally brought me to my knees when they showed the pictures. If you haven't seen it, you can probably find it maybe even on YouTube, the full documentary it's called, I think it's called what's wrong with aunt Diane or what's the matter with Mm -hmm. aunt Diane. When they showed the pictures, it's graphic. They showed the pictures of the wreckage. It was about a woman who was a mom who in her minivan drove very drunk the wrong way. um, I think it was like the New Jersey Turnpike and Mm -hmm. ended up killing herself her three, I think it was her three nieces. Yeah, I think two or three nieces and then two of her three children. One of, of her, them survived. One of them survived. Her son survived. And it was a head-on collision with another car, which killed two or three people. Mm-hmm. And the story is awful. It's awful. And she was one of us. And her story, like when they interview in that movie, they interview her family and her friends who are still in complete denial that she was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking how easily that could be me because I've been hiding it so well that if something did happen, that would be my family going, but she was perfect. She had a great job. She had it all together. She had it all together. I don't understand. And And I was just like, I don't have to wait to do that to stop this now. But yeah, I totally recommend that movie is hard. It's It's a hard hard to stomach. Oh, but it was so I was newly sober when I watched it. I wasn't drinking anymore, but it was early. I mean, it was still in that time when I was thinking, well, maybe I could, you know, not drink for a month. And I remember watching that and being like, never again. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, they show some of the images. They show her dead body, which is like shocking. And like, that's where I just like, I literally like fell to my knees in front of the TV and was just sobbing for all women everywhere, for her, for her family, for those children, for the parents of, I think it was her brother's children. I mean, it was just, it was awful. Kind of got off track there. (laughs) Sorry. Tragic story. (laughs) But yeah, no, I think that whatever it is for us that like, we don't have to have those tragic stories, but we do have to realize that that could be us and nobody's better than somebody else. Like I used to say that to myself, like, well, I used to go to recovery meetings, like in my best outfits and be like, I'm not, I'm not them. (laughs) Like they are different than I am. And that was my ego talking. I'll tell you what, that was my addict. Like who was just saying, let's go home. Let's not be here. And my friend Courtney, who was on the podcast, like she always says, like the addict part of you is like always in the sidelines, like working out and like warming up, like just put me in coach, put me in the game. Yeah, I think for me, that resonates in knowing that I have to really work on myself, even though I'm not drinking, because it's easy to get complacent as the months Mm -hmm. and the years go by. Oh, absolutely. It definitely is. And I think that the most interesting thing about my life now is that recovery isn't my whole life. It's just, it's a part of my life now, mm-hmm. but it's so ingrained to who I am. I mean, it's absolutely part of who I am is the identity of a person who doesn't drink, but that doesn't mean I don't still have moments, you know, at the holiday party where it's like, oh yeah, that does look pretty great. And then mm-hmm. I think too, like we were talking about earlier, but can I have 12? Can I have 12 of those? Okay, then no. Yes, you have 12 No thanks, Ben. Do you feel like, because you were saying that you had done a lot of personal development work while you were still drinking and then you got sober. What changed? Like when you got sober and you were still doing personal development work, do you feel like everything was different? Like, do you feel like a fog lifted? Like that's how people describe it. How did it change for you? 
Yeah. You know, when I first got into recovery, I stopped all that stuff. I stopped everything in general. Uh-huh. I literally lived like a slug for like three months. Uh-huh. I mean, I did the bare minimum. I got through the day. I took care of my kids. I did my job. But I just felt like my only goal today is not to drink. Uh-huh. And then once I had gotten far enough away from the physical addiction to it and those physical triggers that I could jump back in, it really was like I describe it, you know, I wear glasses. I have horrible eyes. And I remember when I was a kid and I got glasses for the first time. And I went outside and I looked up and I could see all the leaves on the trees. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like you could see all the leaves on the trees. Cause I had never, I had always seen a big green blob. And I thought that's how everyone saw things. Yeah. And that's how I felt in recovery. Like, oh my God, this is what it's supposed to look like. Mm. Okay. But I think the thing that I really gave myself in recovery was I gave myself time. You know, I really tried to work a lot on letting go of that idea of perfect because I I used to joke to my sponsor, like, I'm going to be the valedictorian of AA. I'm going to do every assignment you give me on time. I'm amazing. And I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that because it was too much pressure. And I knew that feeling in my gut, you know, of like, okay, this isn't good. What that was eventually going to lead to. And so, you know, I find it so interesting that it's kind of happened organically for me the continuation of that work. I've just recently in the past few weeks pulled out these journals and I found, you know, a lot of the same thoughts, but they're resonating. Like I can actually do these things now because I'm not trying to keep up appearances or do this rat race or make people think a certain thing of me. I can just actually do the work. Yeah. And that makes such a big difference. Right. And then it's so interesting because the dividends of that is I am getting what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Like all those things I've been like doing, you know, that whole idea of like hustle, mm-hmm. especially when you're an entrepreneur, like hustle, you got to hustle all the time. It's like, yes, you do have to hustle, but you also have to be patient and you have to be still and you have to listen to the world around you and the universe. And I had none of that before, right. like was not capable. Sitting still was not something I could do. And it's been so interesting, especially in the last year and a half like the opportunities that have come to me, especially career wise, but even with being a parent and just growing as a person, they're just happening organically because kind of the groundwork was already there. Uh It just didn't really click for me until now. Yeah. I like that analogy of the glasses. Like I felt that way too. I think that there were certain moments though in my recovery where life happened or crisis happened or, you know, shit kind of hit the fan and it felt like I was feeling it more, you know? And, and I remember when it was a couple years after I got sober, my son got diagnosed with high functioning autism. And like, as a parent, it's not a fun journey to go through. It's a, an emotional roller coaster. And, and we're sitting at my kitchen counter, just bawling my eyes out. And my best friend, who's not an alcoholic, she said, is this the first time you've ever been through something hard sober? Mm-hmm. And I was like, <laughs> and it kind of startled me and like just the realization of it. And I was like, is this why it feels like I'm falling down a black hole of lava <laughs> and I feel like I'm going to die? <laughs> but it was that surrender. It was like being in that. And at the time I talk a lot about self-trust and like, I didn't have any, like I didn't trust myself enough that I would be okay going through that. And certainly I did not know what was on the other end. I didn't know how to ask for help during those times. I didn't know how to talk about my feelings. I didn't know how to have compassion for myself during that time. I felt like I was being a big baby if I was crying too much about something. So it was like all this stuff came up and I had to kind of learn how to walk. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. know how. And they say 
some people in recovery say that when we start our active addiction that we become emotionally stunted. So whatever age you really started, like when you get sober and you start your recovery journey, like that's the age where you pick your emotional intelligence back up. You know, for you, it was 15. It was probably the same for me, even though I wasn't an alcoholic, then I was severely codependent and a love addict. So yeah, I felt like a teenager emotionally. And I've had to figure this all out. And thankfully I have a ton of resources and a ton of really great people, but That was some scary shit, not having a bottle to turn to. Absolutely. And that's, you know, this last year of my life personally has been by far the hardest in recovery. I had a very beloved family member become very, very, very ill and kind of had to drop my life to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking then, and I think it even more now, this was all meant to happen in this way, because if I did not have recovery and sobriety, I cannot imagine dealing with this, even though sure it would have been easier to pick up the bottle, but like I wouldn't have actually been able to be of service to him, to my family, to myself. And one of the biggest things for me was I was able to actually have boundaries in a really hard situation. Cause for someone like me, super codependent, you know, the old me, even if I wasn't picking up a bottle every 10 minutes, I would have been trying to do all the things all the time fixing everything. Let me take care of it. And thank goodness I was in the position in the last year to really look at that and set healthy boundaries for myself and take care of myself along with everyone else, Mm -hmm. which is something I never would have. I remember seeing that, you know, in all the literature before, like self-care and thinking like, I don't understand what that means. Yeah. Do do you want me to like take a bath or something? (laughs) (laughs) I will take a 10 minute bath with a glass of wine outside the bath. (laughs) But now, I mean, that's a huge part of my recovery is Mm self-care. And thank goodness, because I never would have been able to get through last year without it. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I... I could have talked to you all day long. And I love your story. And thank you so much. And anyone who wants more of Megan, you can get all the show notes at yourkickasslife.com forward slash R9. A link to her website, Crazy Bananas, is there as well as you can follow her on Instagram. And thank you so much for being here, Megan, and sharing your story. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome. And stay tuned. Next week is our last episode for this particular season of the recovery podcast. It's going to be a solo episode. I'm going to talk about how I have stayed sober dealing with the grief of losing my father. So I've put that episode off until the very last one. (laughs) It's going to be a hard one to get through, but thank you again, everyone for being here. Go check out the show notes and go get more of Megan and her story and her articles that she's written about recovery. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.